postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it is Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. Uh, this, is a, this is a huge, huge, huge week, you guys. Um, the hugest week of all time. Because in just a few days, November 5th, uh, the Bible study set, uh, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture, is going to officially go live, which means you'll be able to come onto the storychurchproject.com, go to the store, and order your copy. And uh, I gotta be honest, you guys, I'm like super stoked, but super nervous as well. Um, it's been it's been about five years in the making, five six years roughly. Um, and yeah, I'm just super super stoked and. Um, Wow, <laughs> I can't believe we're finally here, uh, finally at release, at the release week, at the launch week, and yeah, wow. Uh, so, okay, let me stop saying wow long enough to um, remind you guys that when the book becomes available, you will be able to purchase it in two separate formats. So one format is a print book. You just go on Amazon.com and order it as a print book. Um, and then the other format will be uh, the PDF format. And what the PDF format basically means, I've described this before, but let me just do it again. Um, what it basically means is that you can actually download a license for a certain amount of prints uh, for the PDF. And so you can just actually print them from your own house, which is like way more convenient uh, if you, for example, if you want to go through the book with a class of people, say there's 10 people, uh, you could order 10 copies of the book from Amazon, uh, or you could order a PDF license that allows you to print up to up to 10, uh, and it's significantly more convenient, and you can space it out, you know, you can print one lesson and the next, um, you know, depending on, on when you need them. Uh, so yeah, so it's just a more convenient option. Um, so those will be the two available ways in which you can get access to the book. Now, some people have asked, um, is it going to be come in like a pamphlet format, kind of like the traditional study sets where you can actually get like, you know, a pamphlet for one of the one of the studies, but not necessarily buy the whole thing? And the answer is no, because a lot of the sets that come in the pamphlet format they are structured as a Bible study set on a topical approach to scripture. Uh, meaning, you know, here's a topic, here's a study on the Sabbath, and here's a study on death, and here's a study on, you know, health, for example. So they're topical studies. Um, however, this particular study set isn't topical. It's thematic. So it's a narrative, which means that if I, you know, if, if I gave you chapter five and said, go study this with someone, it actually wouldn't make a lot of sense because chapter five needs chapter four and chapter four needs chapter three. Like they're very, they're interconnected on a really, um, really deep level. And so while each chapter can be understood, they can't really be appreciated fully without the panorama. So that's why this is not coming out in a pamphlet format ever. It's only going to be a, a book format. Uh, now, of course, if you get the PDF, you can you can print the lessons that you want whenever you want, right? But even then, I would recommend that you do that in cohesion, right? So that you're you're actually leading someone through the entire journey, and to resist at all costs the temptation to say, "I'm just going to print this one out and share this one," um, because. Yeah, studying the Bible with people isn't about giving them spot ideas or propositional truth points. It's about leading them into an encounter with God and the story of God and the heart of God. 
And that can't be done in a truth point, all right? That can only be done in self-sacrificial journeying, right? Taking the time, uh, sacrificing some Netflix um, binging to hang out with someone and journey with them gently through the narrative of Scripture. Um, and that, especially in a secular context, which is what these studies are designed for, that can take a long time, you guys, a long, long time. And so, yeah, most study sets assume, hey, go through this with someone six months in and boom, let's get them baptized. Uh, but no, that's not what we're doing here, uh, particularly in secular mission. I mean, if you're studying with young people at church, you might be able to kind of do it that way. But if you're studying with true blue secular seekers, then, you know, the, the honest truth is you'll probably have to go on this journey for a few years and use the study set slowly and gently and just journey with them slowly and gently. There's there's no rush to get to from part one to part two to part three, right? You just you just go slow and and um, as God is unveiling and revealing and their eyes are opening and, and their hearts are being molded in into that space, into that image, uh, then you can take forward steps. But anyways, this isn't a training seminar on how to use the road because when you actually purchase the road, it gives you access to the road online, which is a training school and series of reflection videos that accompanies chapter. Uh, so you'll get everything you need at that point. But I'm just excited, you guys. I'm just stoked. Um, I can't stop talking about it. And, you know, I figured I'm either going to drive my wife crazy talking about it or I'll drive you guys crazy talking about it. So here I am. I'm talking about it. Anyway, I do need to move on because we have a giant episode today. Uh, we are going into the next episode of Adventism for a Post-Church Generation. Remember that there is a, um, a book uh, what do you call it, an accompanying book, um, something like that, that, that you can actually purchase from Amazon as well. Just go to the storychurchproject.com slash store, look at the books, and there's a book titled Weird Volution. And that book accompanies this, um, this podcast series. So if you want that, just uh, get on there. You can get the ebook, or you can get the print book, or you can get neither. It's up to you. So let's dive in to this next Episode. In the previous episode, we talked about what makes Adventism like not unique, I suppose. Um, let me completely rephrase that because that was horrible. In the previous episode, we talked about the the really the concept of Adventism as this mythologically unique group of people or idea. And and we sort of deconstructed that and saw that pretty much everything Adventism believes. Uh, at least to a large degree, existed long before we came on the scene. And this isn't just our beliefs, it's also our practices. And so I, I find it really, really weird when people say, that's not Adventist, because I'm like, so what is Adventist? Um, <laughs> and what people usually mean by that is, you know, that's not 1950s uh, rural American Eurocentric, Anglo-centric uh, expression of conservative Adventism. That's usually what they mean. Because uh, when someone says that's not Adventism, uh, nine times out of ten, their picture of Adventism is constrained not by what makes Adventism authentically Adventism, but by the categories through which they've personally and individually always experienced Adventism. And those categories aren't necessarily bad, right? There's nothing wrong with a, a European and Anglo expression of your faith, okay? Uh, so I want to make that clear because sometimes people are like, hey, you know, you're shaming all the you're shaming all the white people. And that's honestly, that's not my vibe. That's not my jam. Uh, I am not a fan of a lot of the, you know, they used to have the witch hunt back in the days. And nowadays, sometimes it feels like there's a white hunt in the culture. Um, and I'm not into that. That's not, <laughs> it's not my jam at all. Um, I think that there's beauty in Anglo culture and there's beauty in Euro culture and, 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 and the way it expresses itself and its styles and music and all that stuff is, is gorgeous. Um, my contention is just don't sacralize it. Yeah, don't don't view the way of the Anglo as somehow inherently sacred 
and the way of the Indian and the way of the African and the way of the Latin as somehow inherently pagan and, and uh, decadent and that we somehow need to align ourselves with the sensibilities and expressions of the European way in order to finally make God happy and sing songs that make God happy and play instruments that make God happy and dress in a way that makes God happy as though God is himself um, only pleased by the way of the Anglo. That's where I draw the line. Yeah. So I love the way of the Anglo. <laughs> that, that actually sounds really epic. Um, I love it. There's beauty in it, but it's not the only thing that has beauty in it. The Latin expression, the African expression, the Arabic expression, the Asian expression, the Indian expression, the native expression, the indigenous expressions, they have beauty in them too. Uh, and I believe that the gospel can amplify all of the beauty in all of our cultures while challenging the broken parts of it as well. Um, so again, coming back to our, our main theme, because that's not the main topic for today, but just coming back to our main theme, um, this idea of this is what Adventism is. And, you know, like I grew up with the notion of, uh, you know, th there was a radio station where I grew up in New Jersey uh, that Harold Camping was always on that station. It was like, I think it was called Family Radio. <laughs> and they always sang like super traditional conservative uh, like hymns and choirs. Um, and I remember my dad used to say, oh, they're not Adventists, but they sing Adventist music. And, um, and so he loved their station because they, quote unquote, sang Adventist music. And I always wondered, like, what's Adventist music? Like, Adventists didn't write any of these songs. <laughs> and they're just, they're just Anglo songs. Like, why? You know, anyways. Um, and and it's, so that's our culture. Like, our culture borrows from the world around us. And, and our beliefs have also come through a long tradition of Protestant development. And so in that sense, there's a lot about us that owes its existence to, to the other. And if we recognize that and celebrate that, we'll find that we have so much in common with people. And we have so much in common with Pentecostals. And we have so much in common with Methodists and Wesleyans and, and Mennonites. And, you know, we, we may not have, like, their mystical views of spirituality, but we have so much in common with their how deeply they're rooted in the Radical Reformation and the Radical, radical Reformation's protest of injustice and empire. And, and that's such a deep part of the Adventist apocalyptic landscape and, and our, our political consciousness, this idea that you know, the kingdom of God is where it's all at, that there is no such thing as a just human empire, as a modern-day Israel. Um, not that the ancient Israel was just itself, but, you know, <laughs> um, there's just so many things that are in common, and we tend to focus on the few things that we, that we don't have in common, and then we exacerbate those issues and demonize the other. And I'm like, no, no, just... We don't need to do that. We don't need to put someone else down in order to lift ourselves up because we are independently beautiful. We are beautiful irrespective of how ugly someone else might be. And I'm not saying that they are ugly. Just making the point. But what I want to do in this episode, now that we've, we've done that, so we're wrapping that up, moving on. Um, what I want to do in this episode is I want to begin to explore what it is that does make Adventism unique what it is that does give it its unique flavor in the conversation, in the market of ideas about God, about scripture, um, yeah, about the cosmos. So I'm going to introduce, I'm going to uh, sort of lay the foundation in this episode for that uniqueness. And you're, if, if you're familiar with these themes, then, you know, cool. If you're not familiar with these themes, I'm not going to lie, some of this might be kind of heavy. So I'm going to do my best to make it simple. This is probably going to be a long episode too, by the way, just so you know. Uh, I'm going to do my best to make it simple, but some of this stuff, there's just, there's no way for me to really move forward unless, yeah, <laughs> it's, it gets heavy. That's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So let's begin here. Adventism is eccentric. That's my claim. There's something eccentric about us. We, we derive our identity and our sense of self from so many others in Protestant tradition. 
in Christian tradition. But there's also something about us that's deeply unique, uh, deeply other. And so in order to explain what I mean, what I mean by that, I actually have to step away from Adventism, right? So we're going to step out of Adventism, and we're going to take a little bit of a tour through the history of Protestant thought. Um, and I'm going to do this really, really briefly, you guys. I'm not going to go into like tons and tons and tons of detail. And this might even be a little bit more brief than what I go into in the book Weird Volution because I don't want to be here for like two hours recording an episode. I'm not Joe Rogan, all right? Uh, but what we're going to do then is we're going to go back in time to the days of, um, of burning people at the stake for, <laughs> for disagreeing with the Pope and, and just kind of walk our way forward through the Protestant Reformation and beyond so that by the time we get to the end, we can actually see where Adventism fits into this story, into this narrative, into this, progress, this progression, sorry, uh, this progression of thought. Um, and so, yeah, take a deep breath and let's go on the journey. So a bit of Protestant history. All right. The first inclination or indication of, of Protestantism, and this is arguable, but um, bear with me. The, the first inclination of Protestants is, is what some refers to, what some refer to. Boy, my, my tongue keeps getting tied. What some refer to as the proto-Protestants. So kind of like the, you know, the Waldensians, the Lollards, and the Hussites. Uh, these were the movements that protested uh, the, the crazy, whack ideas of the medieval church uh, before Luther showed up on the scene, right? Before the actual Protestant movement took off. Um, and so after these guys, and, and you know, a lot of them were persecuted and killed and, and stuff, but then their ideas kind of remained underground. But then came Luther, and voila, there was this giant explosion, and the Protestant Reformation was born. And at the Protestant Reformation, there emerged two primary camps. And, and I want you guys to think of it like this, because this is going to be the most helpful way in which you can understand the way Adventism uh, brings unique ideas to the table. Think of the theological traditions within Christianity as stories, all right? And we're not saying that one story is better than the other or that one story is more right than the other or that the people who believe one story are inherently holier than the other. That's, that's not what we're saying. We're just saying the stories are different, okay? And what makes them different is that they start at different places uh, and the plot line unfolds in different ways and ends in different places. So I think that's a pretty simple way to go forward. So there were two primary camps in the Protestant Reformation from the very beginning. The first camp, and perhaps the most popular camp, is known as the Calvinist camp. And this is because there was a reformer by the name of John Calvin who uh, was behind, you know, he was sort of the mastermind of this camp. And so it's kind of taken on his name, the Calvinist camp. And the Calvinist taught that God had predetermined all things, including the fall of man, and who was going to heaven, and in some circles, even who was going to hell. And, and so basically this, this idea that God's this all-powerful being and that nothing happens unless he dictates that it happens. And so if you're going to be in heaven, it's because God chose you to be in heaven before he even created the world. And if you're going to go to hell, it's because God chose you to go to hell before he even created the world. And everything, including Satan's rebellion, everything was scripted by God. Not, there's no free will, basically. Um, everything's just moving to God's script. Um, so that was one story. And then came another story, which is known as the Arminian story. And this one was, um, it gets his name from another reformer named Jacobus Arminius, a Dutch reformer, which is why his name is weird. Um, and Jacobus Arminius, sorry to all the Dutch people listening to this, by the way. <laughs> um, you guys are awesome. So, and so is Arminius, by the way. So Jacobus Arminius, he told a different story. Um, he taught that God had granted humanity freedom to decide between being saved or lost without him having to predetermine their choices. So for Arminius and for the Arminian movement, there was freedom of will. And there was freedom of will because the primary uh, thing, the primary element or concept through which we understand God is his love, not his coercive authority or power like the Calvinists did. Now, the Calvinist camp, to, to extrapolate on that a bit, the Calvinist camp was mainly concerned with the authority of God, 
which led it to place this huge emphasis on his power. And, and it gave birth to denominations like the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, and the Episcopalians. On the other hand, the Arminian camp was mostly concerned with the love of God. And they saw the dictator God of Calvinists as antithetical to that love that scripture reveals. And, and the Arminian camp gave birth to denominations like the Methodists, the Pentecostals, the Wedley, and, and the Wesleyans. Uh, and of course, Adventism is in the Arminian camp uh, and emerged mostly from that Arminian camp. So, what is it that makes Adventism unique? The only answer I've ever encountered in my years as an Adventist is that our uniqueness lies in the doctrine of 1844, right? The pre-Advent judgment. But the idea that there would be no Seventh-day Adventist church without the doctrine of the investigative judgment, it just doesn't really fully work for me. And, and, and maybe you'll disagree here. And if you do, listen, it's not a main point. Um, I think, you know, there are much more bigger points to discuss that are coming on. But I guess the way I think of it is that while this doctrine definitely plays a role in our uniqueness, it ultimately has as its foundation Arminian Wesleyan soteriology, right? So the Arminian Wesleyan understanding of salvation, which originated before Adventism was ever thought of, is at the foundation of the investigative judgment doctrine. So I don't know, like, okay, there's an element of it that, that's unique, but it's entirely constructed on something that, is, that existed way before, before we were around. Um, and of course, the, the, the peculiar date, 1844, it doesn't really cut it either for me because if you get rid of the date, 1844, and bear with me here because I believe in the date, 1844, so don't have a hissy fit when I say this, but if you were to delete the date, 1844, it doesn't alter Adventist theology in any major way. At best, it might lead us to say, huh, we have to rethink the way we, you know, calculate the storyline. But nothing else would really change. Like, if you got rid of the date 1844, I would still believe in a pre-Advent investigative judgment. It, it's not necessary. The date only tells me when this process began. It doesn't prove to me that the process exists or that the process is necessary. Again, the process of the pre-Advent investigative judgment is rooted in our Arminian Wesleyan thought, which we explored in the previous episode. And all Arminian Wesleyans believe that when someone is saved and they die, they go to heaven and they, and they face their judgment at the pearly gates. Um, and so in Arminian Wesleyan theology, there is an investigative judgment. The difference between them and us is that for the Arminian Wesleyan view, the investigative judgment simply happens the moment, you, the moment you die. So you die, you go to heaven, you have your judgment. If you were faithful to the end, you're in the kingdom. And if you rejected God and turned away from him and went down the path of selfishness and sin, then, you know, you don't get in. And so uh, this is a, a really terribly oversimplified. I know there's so much more nuance than that, but I'm just trying to make a, a basic point here, that in the Arminian Wesleyan view, every time someone dies and goes to heaven, there's an investigative judgment for that particular person. But because Adventists don't believe the soul goes straight to heaven when a person dies, well, when does their judgment take place then? If the soul doesn't go to heaven when they die, when does their judgment take place? Does it take, does it take place when Jesus comes back? Because, um, yeah, when he comes back, the Bible says he already has his reward with him. So it doesn't take place when he comes back. So it's got to take place at some point before. And so the investigative judgment, and, and by the way, I give lots of credit to Mike Cipriminea, who I had on the podcast some time ago talking about last generation theology. Um, he really, um, he's really the guy who's popularized or made this case really, really well, that so long as you have soul sleep theology, which Adventists do, plus an Arminian Wesleyan soteriology, which Adventists do, then you need some sort of judgment that takes place before Jesus returns. And again, the date 1844 only informs that the process or, or when that particular process begins in history. It doesn't actually root it or defend it. It's, it's rooted in Arminian Wesleyan plus soul sleep theology. That's it. 
1844 might be a unique thing, and I agree with it, but it doesn't make us unique. It's, it's, you know, so whatever does make us unique transcends our view of the judgment. So allow me to suggest this. Allow me to suggest that what makes Adventism unique isn't actually any particular doctrine. Rather, what makes us unique lies in the reason why we embrace the doctrines that we do to begin with. So there's something that leads us to embrace the beliefs that we have. What is that something? And so if I put it simply, while all of our doctrines exist outside of our faith in one degree or another, and we saw that in the previous episode, they exist outside of our faith sporadically. They're kind of here, there, and everywhere. But Adventism is the only movement on the planet in which each of these beliefs come together under a singular narrative. And so in a sense, that's one of the phenomenons that makes Adventism unique because Adventism appears to be a hive for these really unique perspectives and doctrines, and they sort of all come together into one cohesive uh, sort of hive mind. Um, but our uniqueness actually goes even deeper than that. Um, so again, I asked, like, why is it that Adventist thought has attracted all of these beliefs, almost like a magnet toward itself? Um, why are we the only denomination who embraces all of these beautiful ideas all at the same time? Um, and again, like I said, in the previous episode, we saw how a lot of these ideas are outside of Adventism. They've preceded Adventism, but they're, they're disconnected from one another. You know, there might be, you know, the Puritans believe this and the Wesleyans believe that and and those who subscribe to 1689 federalism and, you know, the covenantal theology, uh, they're, they're over there. Uh, but then you have Adventists and kind of like you get all of these di diverse ideas that come together into one narrative. And then the question is why? Why us? Why have we kind of become like this sort of nucleus around which these ideas orbit. Not us, as in, you know, I should probably rephrase that. Why has Adventism as a perspective, as a theme, uh, become a sort of a, a hub around which all of these beautiful ideas orbit? And I think that the uniqueness or the thing that makes us unique, it lies in the answer to that question. But here's the thing. I can't actually answer that question right now. Because we've had our little tour through um, Protestant history, but but now I need to take another tour, because what we're doing is we're laying the foundation here. So the other tour is titled "How Theology Develops." All right, so that's going to be our second tour. So if you need to go back through the first tour because you feel like you didn't understand something, go back, pause, rewind. But if you're ready, we're now going to go through our second tour, "How Theology Develops," and again we're 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 really looking at the question of, you know, why is it that Adventism has attracted all of these concepts to itself, kind of like this hive? Um, so let's let's explore that uh, really briefly and really quickly. Now, in order to understand how theology develops, I'm going to use a series of metaphors. Because the thing is, a lot of people think that theology develops like this. Man sits down. Man opens Bible and reads Bible. Man now has a theology. Uh, and so the truth is, it's nowhere near that simple, all right? When a person reads the Bible, they don't magically develop a pure theology just because they sat down and read the Bible. There is a more complex um, system or, or process unfolding when a person opens Scripture. So let's put it this way. Theology is the result of two things. Your presupposition plus your interpretation equals your theology. So let me say that again. Your presupposition plus your interpretation equals your theology. So let me give you the, the metaphor, the illustration. Suppose I have a, a, a piece of white paper. And I put it on a table and ask you to look at it. What would you see? The answer is a piece of white paper. But what if you took a pair of red-tinted glasses 
and put them on? Or what if I put those red tinted glasses on you and you had no idea you were wearing red tinted glasses, by the way? Um, what would you see? You would see a red tinted paper. And this is exactly how theological reflection works. We all come to the Bible with these set of glasses and these glasses have a tint. And nine times out of 10, we don't actually know that we are wearing these tinted glasses. And so those glasses, again, they have a certain tint, and that tint is developed by um, philosophy, our culture, our various experiences, and, and all of that, that tint is essentially our presupposition. And over time, we, could be, we become committed to the tint, and we see, often unconsciously, and we define everything we see according to this tint. And this defining what we see according to the tint is our interpretation. So when we come to the Bible, we already have the glasses on. And when we open to a, a text that says the paper is white, our glasses provide us with a tint to interpreting that text as saying the paper is red. And the result of our presupposition and interpretation is that the church of the red paper theology is born. So this is how theology works again. You have your presupposition, your red glasses, your interpretation, defining what I see by the red glasses, and finally, you develop a theology. The paper is red, not white. And of course, if someone else has yellow-tinted glasses, then they'll say, no, the paper is yellow, not red, or white. And then the church of the yellow paper theology is born, and the two of you fight each other and write nasty articles about each other on magazines on the internet. So this is why saying that Adventism is unique because of 1844 is such an understatement because 1844 is part of our theology. It belongs at the bottom of the presupposition interpretation theology process. It is not a presupposition. It is not an interpretive framework. So as a result, 1844 and all our other beliefs come in at the end of the theological process, not at the beginning. So the question that will help us identify our weirdness, our eccentricness, isn't what is our theology. The question that we really need to ask is, what is our presupposition? In other words, what glasses is Adventism wearing when it comes to the text that has led Adventism as a concept or led Adventism as a concept to manifest in the expression in which it manifests, in, uh, in other words, in holding to the doctrines that it holds to. And the answer to that question reveals what truly makes us unique. So now you're probably wondering, all right, man, so what is it? Tell us, tell, tell me the glasses. I want to know the glasses that make us unique. Um, I can't do that right now because now we have to take another tour. <laughs> oh, I'm having fun here, you guys. This tour thing is cool. I got to take another tour. Because the truth is that in order for you to appreciate the glasses that Adventism is wearing, I need to go back to Calvinism and Arminianism, and I need to look at the glasses that they are wearing. And so once we see the glasses that Calvinism is wearing, we can look at the glasses that Arminianism is wearing, and then we can try and understand the glasses that Adventism is wearing. So let's let's try and do that really quickly. So we've done two things so far. We've looked at this brief little history of Protestantism. We've looked at a brief uh, sort of view of how theology develops with presuppositions first, and then you have interpretation, and then you revive at your theology. And now we're going to go back to Calvinism and Arminianism and look at its presuppositions or their presuppositions, their glasses. All right. So historically speaking, all Christians have viewed Scripture as a story. From beginning to end, the Bible, we believe, is telling a grand story that we are invited to know, understand, and enter into. And this grand story can be separated into two headings. The big story is the first heading, and the little story is the second heading. The big story is defined as the most transcendent part of Scripture's story. And it deals almost exclusively with who God is and what he is like apart from creation. All right, so the big story is who is God, what is he like apart from creation. Transcendent, that's the big story. The little story is related to our local planet. 
So how does the God of the big story interact with us in space and time on our local planet? That's the little story. So the big story is transcendent God. The little story is imminent, us here in our planet and how God has interacted with us in here in our planet. So for example, the history of Israel in the Bible is little story, whereas the nature of God and the Trinity, this is before creation even existed, is the big story. So now that we've ironed that out, let's spend a little bit of time on the big story. Because the most popular understanding of the big story within Protestant Christianity are the two groups that I've already mentioned, the Calvinists and the Arminians. And both of these big stories tell different stories of who God is and what he's like. So again, come back to this idea of stories, all right? The Calvinists tell a story of who God is, and the Arminians tell a story of who God is. And both stories are deeply different. They are not the same. So how exactly does this play out? Let's, let's start with Calvinism because Calvinism is the oldest uh, tradition within Protestantism and it remains to this day the most popular, at least in terms of academia. The Calvinist worldview holds to a particular presupposition, a particular set of glasses, all right? And here's where things get heavy, you guys. So you got you to gotta have your thinking cap on, all right? If your kids are running around screaming and distracting you, this is not the time to listen to this <laughs> um, because this gets heavy. The Calvinist glasses, the Calvinist presupposition is this, the timelessness of God. Now, that is a big word, timelessness. I know. I'm sorry. I did warn you, but... We're going we're gonna to do our best to make sense of this as we go. Now, of course, here's the thing. All Christians believe that God exists outside of time in some sense. We, he's not like us. He's not mortal or temporal like we are. We all believe that. There's no dispute there. But the thing is that within Calvinism, timelessness is defined by using a certain philosophical reasoning and the reasoning goes something like this all right B bear with me here try, try try your best to follow god is timeless timeless means that god cannot experience before and after because before and after are elements of time they imply time if god cannot experience before and after then he cannot know the future by looking into the future and discovering what's going to happen in the future because that implies that there was a time before God knew and a time after God knew. It implies before and after. And because God is outside, because God is timeless, he cannot experience before and after. Therefore, God knows the future not because he discovered it, but because he predetermined it. And all of angelic and human history has been predetermined by God's sovereign will, including who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Granted, this is a bit oversimplified because, you know, I'm not trying to get all platonic and Aristotelian here on you guys, but it's nevertheless accurate. And as logical as this flow of thought may be within Calvinism, Arminians argue that the Calvinist, this Calvinist view is actually way more Greek in its philosophy than biblical in its portrait of God. The Bible never, and here's the key, you guys, the Bible never defines timelessness. It, it, we know that God exists outside of time in some sense, but the Bible never attempts to define what that means. Can he experience before and after? You know, all, all that. Stuff. It never goes into that stuff. And so using this speculative definition that God can't experience before and after, which, by the way, is derived from Parmenides and Plato, who were Greek philosophers, and using this speculative philosophy as the key to interpreting the Bible is allowing human reasoning to color the text. And obviously that's not cool. So here's how the Calvinist system basically breaks down. Presupposition, God's timeless nature. He cannot experience before and after. Interpretation, therefore, God has predetermined history. And then you get to your theology. Salvation is only for the few that God has predetermined. 
The Arminians, on the other hand, disagree with this worldview. These concepts, they argue, force a dictatorial and disturbing picture of a God who is anything but love. And, and, and by the way, in, in, in really philosophically um, schooled Calvinist circles, if you ask them, well, why would God create a universe that he has scripted? Because that means that when I love him, it's meaningless to him because it's not real love. I'm not choosing to love him. I've been programmed to love him. In true Calvinism, the response would be, your love is meaningless to God because God can't experience before and after. So you loving God doesn't do anything for him. He's not interested in your love or your hate. Because if your love for God made God happy, that would imply that God, that there was a time before your love made him happy and there's a time after your love made him happy. And because God can't experience before and after, therefore your love uh, is meaningless to him. So God is not concerned with a universe that loves him. He's, he's, he, he's, he's sovereign, he's almighty, and this is how he's done it, and we just have to obey. Um, and so that's the Calvinist perspective. Which, weirdly enough, is like the exact opposite of Adventism, but you'll find people in the Adventist church, particularly in the conservative camp, who talk about God in very similar ways. So something to think about as we go forward. So again, coming back to the Arminians. So the Arminians disagree with this because they're like, this, is, this God is anything but love. So Arminianism responds to Calvinism by focusing on the love of God. And so it introduces the freedom of the will. And this is done in order to preserve the loving nature of God. So in Arminianism, the presupposition is God's loving nature. The interpretation is love demands freedom of the will because God is love. He wants a free, he wants a loving universe and that, that demands freedom of the will. So that's the interpretation. And the theology is, when, at least when it comes to salvation, is salvation is for all mankind. It's not just for the few that God has elected to go to heaven. It's for all mankind. And we can choose whether or not we want to follow God whether or not we want that salvation. Now, when John Wesley entered the picture, he took Arminianism to the next level. John Wesley, you know, the father, the father of the Wesleyan movement, Arminian Wesleyan movement. He, so he took Arminianism to the next level. John Wesley was concerned with the character of God. And so he began to extrapolate this battle between good and evil in the Bible in order to, to better understand who God is in light of his love. And Wesley, like most other Arminians, thought that Calvinism was disturbing and he felt, and by the way, I'm quoting, quoting Wesley here, he felt that the idea of absolute unconditional predestination by divine decree was inconsistent with God's justice as well as his love and goodness, end quote. And you can get those sources in the book, by the way. And if you want the sources, but you're like, eh, I don't want to get the book, just send me an email. I can, I can send you the sources. Uh, but the bottom line is this. For Arminians, the Reformation is about returning to the God of love of Scripture, which Calvinism failed to do. So this is why you have two separate stories. In Calvinism, uh, you have you know one story of God. Arminianism, you have a totally different story of God. Okay, so this is the big story. We've talked about the big story. Now, what about the little story, right? Let's talk about the little story for a second. In the little story, the question of how this God from the big story relates to, interacts with, and operates with his creation is answered. While, so while the big story focuses on who God is and what he's like, the little story focuses on planet Earth. And so in theology, this encompasses creation, the fall, the flood, the nation of Israel, the church, end-time events, and the covenants that God makes with man. For Calvinists, this little story is understood through the glasses of God's power. For Arminians, it's best understood through the glasses of his love. So Calvinism developed these systematic ways of approaching the big and little story. All right, now I want you to follow me here because we're going to move past this now, but then we're going to come back to it later. So you got to remember this point. Calvinism develop systematic ways of approaching the relationship between the big and the little story. And these systematic ways are known as covenantalism. So don't, don't worry about that word. I know it's boring. I know it's huge. Um, just know that Calvinism developed a holistic biblical approach 
that they summarize with that big giant word, covenantalism. It's basically their whole Bible theology of how the God of the big story interacts with the humans of the little story. And so this systematic is basically what it is, a systematic theology. It's, it's best understood, as I said, as a whole story approach to the Bible in that it seeks to make sense of all of Scripture's themes from Genesis to Revelation through the Calvinist glasses. Now, naturally you'd say, all right, well, what about Arminians' whole Bible approach? It'd be really cool to see what their whole Bible approach is. Um, but before I actually discuss Arminianism's whole Bible approach, we need to highlight another contribution that Arminianism brings to the table. And so, so far we've explored the big story and the little story, but Arminianism introduced another element to help make more sense of the Bible's narrative and the uniqueness of Adventism. And I call it the middle story. So put simply, the middle story is the story that lies between the big story and the little story. This middle story, and by the way, if you feel like things are kind of all over the place right now and you're trying to wrap your head around it, don't stress it because it's perfectly normal. There's a lot of stuff floating in the air right now, but we're going to bring it all into a nice seamless stream pretty soon. So if you feel like, oh boy, I, I can't keep up. Like what's now we're on this middle story thing. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It'll all come together. Um, but anyways, the middle story of Arminianism is essentially the story that lies between the big story and the little story. And this, that's why I call it the middle story. And it was developed and expounded upon by many reformers, uh, most effectively John Wesley, in what he referred to as scripture's aesthetic theme. And we talked about that in the previous episode, which is basically like the precursor to the great controversy theme of Adventism. And according to Wesley, in this aesthetic theme or this middle story, God was not responsible for evil. And so using his love of God glasses, his Arminian love of God glasses, Wesley revisited the Bible to discover what the origin of evil entailed. And he found a war there between good and evil that originated with Satan, who used his free will as an angel to rebel against God and consequently led humanity into rebellion. So while the big story reveals who God is and what he is like, the middle story explains how sin originated in light of God's goodness. Now, here's the question, because we're going to start bringing all, this, all these floating bits into, into some sort of orbit. Why is this important? And here's the reason why it's important. Calvinists don't have a middle story because they don't need a middle story. They, they don't need a middle story that explains the presence of sin and evil why? Because their glasses, their presupposition is deterministic. In other words, everything that happens in creation has been predetermined by God. So at the end of the day, there's no need to explain the battle between good and evil because God predetermined everything. So Calvinists don't really have a middle story. They may be able to, you know, comment on the biblical verses about the war in heaven and all that stuff, but ultimately, their big story of this God who can't experience before and after and who therefore predetermines all of history um, basically absorbs all of that. And so they don't really have a middle story other than to say, you know, e evil, sin, etc. God predetermined it. For Arminians, on the other hand, the most important attribute of God is the attribute of his love. And so everything is an outflow of God's love in Arminianism, and that includes his power. So all of God's creation in the Arminian worldview was designed to operate under the law of love, which is a law that harmonizes only with freedom because love can't be coerced and it can't be manipulated and it can't be determined or programmed. And so this other-centered paradigm in Arminian thought was to be the foundation for temporal reality and for eternity. And so this is the view, the big story that Arminians have of God. But then, of course, what do you do with this God of love in the presence of evil? Because the presence of evil seems to, <laughs> you know, contradict the notion that God is love because look at this crazy evil universe that we live in. So how could a loving God allow such things to happen? And those questions lead men to doubt the big story of God's love. And so they need an explanation. And that explanation in the Arminian movement is found in the middle story.
All right? Okay, so we have Calvinism, big story, little story. We have Arminianism, big story, middle story, little story. Calvinism developed a cohesive whole Bible approach to explaining the big story and little story based on its presupposition, right? It developed a systematic theology, this system of thought from Genesis to Revelation. So now let's talk about Arminians' full scripture theology, their systematic, their whole view of the Bible. And here's where things get a little sad. Because as concerned as Arminianism was and is with the love, justice, and character of God and his government, the movement, the Arminian movement, has repeatedly failed in one key area. Unlike the Calvinists who managed to interpret the whole Bible through the Calvinist lens and develop a cohesive whole Bible story based on their worldview, the Arminians never did. Joseph Dongle puts it this way, there really is no such thing as Arminian theology if by that we mean an entire system of thought. Arminian theology, more properly and narrowly defined, pertains only to how one interprets the Bible's teaching about predestination. Now, there do exist Arminian whole Bible approaches that attempt to string the story of Scripture together, but they're here, there, and everywhere. Right In Calvinism, you've got these systems like the covenantalism thing that I mentioned earlier, that big boring word, that pretty much it doesn't matter what Calvinist denomination you belong to, they kind of all are based on that. Even if there's a few little differences here and there, they're, they're all really unified in this cohesive picture of scripture. Arminians aren't. And there's a few like random authors who all by themselves have written a systematic theology but it's not represented by any Arminian denomination um, or it's not cohesive within the Arminian movement. It's all over the place. And so, in fact, in, in a 2015 Society of Evangelical Arminians um, post, contributor Brian Abasquiano noted that there, and I quote here, are not a lot of good options for a contemporary comprehensive Arminian systematic theology text, end quote. In other words, there is not one such central system of thought that brought Arminians together to proclaim their theology of God's love to the world. It doesn't exist. Instead, Arminians became more of an approach, or Arminianism, it became more of an approach to understand God as it relates to individual salvation. And that's pretty much it. So some Arminian groups highlight justification and assurance of salvation, like the Arminian Baptists and the Methodists while other Arminian groups emphasize holiness and the Holy Spirit, like the Pentecostals, the Nazarenes, and the Wesleyan holiness charismatic movements. So apart from a few key thinkers here and there, Arminianism never applied its biblical love of God presupposition to the entirety of Scripture. And so as a result, they never really developed cohesive views that enabled them to approach every theme of Scripture, including the law of God, the nation of Israel, the covenants, the church, prophecy, end-time events, and final judgment from this love of God worldview. So in his article, um, Why I'm Not an Arminian, Tim Callies, who, by the way, is a former Arminian who became a Calvinist, he wrote this, Reformed theology, that is Calvinism, depends not only on key verses, but on the warp and woof of the entire Bible. It offers a far more compelling explanation of Scripture than Arminianism, both in its broad outlines and its fine details, end quote. So these, this absence of a whole Bible approach meant that the same movement that began by passionately seeking to redeem the character of God from what they felt was the foul picture of the Calvinist worldview never developed a system of thought that could interpret the entire Bible from that view. And so as a result, this God is love movement never advanced cohesive answers to questions related to the covenants, the law of God, the prophetic timeline, end time events, the Israel church relationship, or the judgment of the wicked. And so consequently, the movement splintered with some tending to either adopt already accepted views in those areas, others plainly refusing to get into certain themes or answer certain questions, and many more caught in endless nuances in between. So, for example, while Arminians rejected the deterministic Calvinist conclusions, you know, God predetermines everything that happens, 
they never rejected the timeless view of God that led to that conclusion, right? They never rejected that timeless view. And so this resulted in a system of thought that was internally incoherent. And in addition, while Arminians rejected some of the philosophical speculations that Calvinism embraced, they never identified the philosophical speculations that they themselves continued to adhere to, such as Platonic dualism, which gave entry to the doctrine of the immortal soul in Christianity. And so, as a result, to this day, Arminianism continues to embrace the self-contradictory view that God is love and has granted freedom of will to all his creatures and yet torments sinners in hell for all eternity simply because they rejected Christ by exercising the free will that he so lovingly gave them. That doesn't make any sense. And likewise, how God performs his judgment over humanity was left as a blank area with no real answer, which is an odd posture for a movement that claimed to defend the justice of God's moral government and his dealings with men. So what do we then end up with? Here's what we end up with. Forget that Adventism exists. Let's just think about Calvinism and Arminianism. If you are a person who is seeking God in culture, you have two options. You have a scary picture of God, like Calvinism, but that comes accompanied by a holistic biblical theology. Or you have a loving picture of God, like Arminianism, that is not accompanied by a holistic biblical theology. And as a result, um, is very splintered and can at times even be very shallow. So you basically have two options if you want to get to know the God of Scripture from the Protestant perspective. Scary God, deep theology, or loving God, no theology. Those are your two options if you are a secular person seeking to understand and experience God. And I don't know about you, but neither of those are compelling. One is a God who is the fundamental substrate of cosmic injustice, um, even though this God, this theological system, is accompanied by very profound and wide uh, panoramic explanations of the existential and human and historical experience of what it means to be a believer in God. And the other is a very loving picture of God, which is nice. But if I have questions, deep existential questions, uh, I don't really get answers in those churches. And every time the pastor gets up to preach, he kind of says the same thing over and over and over again. And eventually I, wanna, I, want, I want my consciousness to expand and I want to enter into new dimensions. But this guy's always saying the same thing, and I'm getting kind of tired of it. But if I go over there where, they, where they, they have a really deep theology, man, their picture of God is creepy. Like, they think that this guy actually is responsible for child abuse and murder and rape and genocide because he scripted it to happen that way. And that doesn't make any sense because if a guy walks into your house and shoots your family you would make sure that, that person spent the rest of their life in jail. But then you'd go to church and worship the God who scripted for that guy to do that. Why would you do everything in your power to put him in jail and then go to church and worship the God that predetermined it? It doesn't make any sense. But then if I go over here where God is love and he doesn't predetermine all this weird stuff, not only do I not get deep answers, but some stuff doesn't even add up. Like, why does this loving God burn people in hell forever? And so I'm lost. Where do I go? Where do I go in this journey? Where do I go in this panorama? How do I actually experience or discover the beauty of God? Is this really all there is? Well, this is where we now move into the next section of our journey. It's a section that I've titled, Enter Adventism. And guess what, you guys? To be continued. <laughs> oh, you guys are going to be so mad at me. Don't send me any hate mail, please. 
we are going to get into enter Adventism in the next episode. And in the next episode, now that we've laid this foundation, in the next episode, we are going to see what is it that makes Adventism unique in the landscape of Christian thought. And what is it that makes it beautifully eccentric and a perspective worth sharing with the whole world? We'll talk about that next week, you guys. Thank you for hanging out. I enjoyed this. Uh, yeah, don't forget November 5th, man. November 5th is the big day. Get yourself a copy of The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture, a Bible study set designed to journey through Scripture in a really profound way while rooted in the love of God and framed for a millennial unchurched audience. I think you guys are going to like it. I hope so. Anyway, take care. God bless. I will catch you guys next week.